Good morning. Welcome again. We're at Psalm 130 this morning. If you're using the Blue Church Bibles, I think it's page 518 or so. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the giving and the hearing of your word. We thank you for speaking to us clearly in words and in ways that we can understand. But Lord, it's not enough just to hear your words. We need you to open our hearts so that we might receive your word and it might bear good fruit. Take the word that you have planted into our hearts, Lord, and cause it to bear fruit so that we might reflect Jesus in this sad and troubled world. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm sure we can think of many times that we have said or thought or heard one of these. I'm overwhelmed. I'm swamped. I'm trapped. I'm drowning. I'm in over my head. I'm suffocating. I'm in the pits. I'm low. I'm beat down. I'm laid out. I'm walked all over. I'm depressed. We have all kinds of ways of expressing something like the situation behind this psalm. The situation of being in the depths. In the Bible, uh, this image of the depths takes the image of being trapped deep underwater or deep in the mud as a way of expressing terror. A figurative way of describing overwhelming and inescapable suffering. But in this case... Psalm 130, in this case, the depths are not just the depths of suffering in general, but they are specifically the depths of sin. The depths of suffering caused by sin. Not just sin in the abstract, not just sin out there in the world somewhere, although that's bad enough, but the depths of dealing with my own sin my own evil and failure as a creature of a holy God who bears this wonderful but tragic responsibility of living for him in his world. This psalm is one of a handful of what we call 
penitential psalms. Many of you know that the psalms, uh, that's just a, it's an old-timey English word for a song or for a poem. Uh, this is a collection at the heart of the Bible of, of liturgical, worshipful songs uh, meant to show us how to express our emotions and our experiences to God with his people. This is what we call a penitential psalm. It means that the author is repenting. He's repenting of his own sins before God by mourning over his sins. But in these penitential psalms, the psalmist never merely mourns over his sin. But in these psalms, we also and we ultimately turn toward God and we savor his forgiveness. It's a straightforward poem about the wonder of God's love for sinners. But in its simplicity, in its straightforwardness, it's showing us something of unfathomable importance. So don't be deceived by its simplicity. It's showing us something so important, something I can almost guarantee more important than anything else you're going to worry about this week. This is a psalm about how and why we can enjoy God's love even though we don't deserve it. At the very heart of this psalm is the central truth of the good news of Jesus. The very heartbeat of this church, even the very heartbeat of the whole universe. The truth that in and through Jesus, God has paid the price to make a way for sinners to enjoy his love forever. That's what we call the gospel. So today, whether you are indifferent about your sin, or maybe you are despairing about your sin today, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle, wherever you are at today in your attitude towards your sin, the psalm is here, perhaps for some of you for the first time, to draw you into the love of God. But before I can embrace the depths of God's love, the psalm shows us that I must first face the depths of my own sin. And that's the first point. We have to face the depths of my own sin. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Amidst all kinds of things that can and do ruin our lives, you can see here that at the end of the day, it's my iniquity that causes the deepest and the darkest misery. The word iniquity, we don't really use this word so much today in our common conversation, but the word iniquity is closely related to the more generic biblical word sin. Uh, but this word iniquity gets more at the idea of being twisted uh, the idea of being broken, uh, it's related to the Hebrew word for being bent. The word can refer to the actions that flow out of this bentness, as well as to the guilt that this bentness brings upon us, and the actions that flow out of that bentness bring upon us. The point, biblically speaking, the point is that sin is not ultimately something that we do, but ultimately, sin is something that we are. Sin is something that we are. 
This is what makes it such a terrible problem. As you can see, when we look honestly at our own hearts, there's something profoundly wrong with me. My problem is not just that I occasionally make mistakes. My problem is that from the cradle to the grave, I avoid and I stiff arm the God who made me. I blow off his wisdom for my life and for this world, and I like doing it. One of Flannery O'Connor's characters facing a spiritual and an existential crisis in a literal pig pen right about as she's, she's about to meet God, she rightly wonders, how am I a hog and me both? Uh, many of you know what she means. How am I a hog and me both? These first few lines underscore that our iniquity, our sin has left us in an inescapable An impossible mess. We are in the depths. As a kid, I was probably about eight or nine years old. I remember hearing on the news, my family watched a lot of TV, uh, and we were always watching the news in the evenings. I remember hearing on the news about some little kid somewhere who had fallen into a well. I remember very vividly on the news, everybody wringing their hands about how they were going to rescue this kid. He was only a few years younger than I was at the time. Uh, how How to get him out of there before he died, before he starved to death down there. And I remember as a kid, imagining a kid just a couple years younger than me, I was probably eight or nine, imagining a kid down there, stuck in the mud and stuck in the darkness. It terrified me at the time. But this psalm and the entire Bible says that sin has put us into a far worse situation with vastly higher stakes. Like the kid in the well, there is nothing that we can do to get ourselves out. Every day, the Bible says, we are actually digging ourselves deeper. We manifest our iniquity more and more. Uh, Children uh, are iniquitous in their own ways, uh, but often very openly and with very little self-control. Adults figure out lots of ways to hide it. They get much more creative about it. Uh, Our self-absorption, our self-pity, our bitterness toward other people, our apathy toward our maker... And so the psalmist shows us how to respond by shouting out to God for mercy. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Pay attention to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We are in such a desperate situation with no hope of rescuing ourselves that all you can do is to cry out to God in spite of what you've done and in spite of what you deserve. The psalmist knows that nobody could ever hope to rescue themselves. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should count iniquities, if you should keep track of all of them, who could stand? The answer, of course, is no one. Again, our problem is not just that we've done a few things wrong. Our problem is that we are twisted. And that because of this, even as God's own people, we keep sinning. We keep finding new ways to stiff arm God. And so if God were to keep a record of all the ways that we failed to be and to do what he wants, nobody would be able to stand with confidence before him in his courtroom. 
Now, this is not true, but imagine if when you joined this church, like we had some people do this morning, uh, I secretly got Elon Musk to install a microchip in your brain that applied some kind of AI algorithm thing to figure out everything that you had ever thought or done or said. And then imagine if I took that, let's just take the last week, let's keep it simple, whatever you said or thought or did in the last week, and I had Elon Musk email me all of those things, and I took a picture of you, and up here on the left side of the screen, I had the best possible picture of you, it's all airbrushed, you look really nice, AI filters applied. And then on the right side of the screen, I start scrolling like the beginning of Star Wars, this list of all these things that you've said and thought and done in the last week. How would you feel? How would I feel? I'd be horrified. How much worse to face the scrutiny, not just of a bunch of people in church with their own hypocrisies and problems, but how much worse to face the scrutiny of the good and the perfect and the holy God who has given you everything, even your life. We're like a teenager who has been constantly and lavishly running up the debt on his parents' credit cards. Now, if and when the parents came and demanded that the prodigal son pay up, there's no way that he could do it. The son and his relationships with his parents would be ruined forever. And in a far more serious and in a far more damaging way, it's the same with us. And with our maker. And just like with that teenager, if we pretend like what we've done is no big deal, if we continue to dig ourselves deeper into it without admitting the problem, if we assume that I assume to, that I assume that I get to run up whatever debts I want, all of that would actually make it all worse. And so each one of us needs to face the depth of our sins. First and foremost, my sins against God. That's the first half of the psalm. Don't skip over it. Because you need to start there to get to the second half of the psalm. If the first half is about digging into the depths of our sin, the second half is about digging into the even deeper depths of God's mercy. From the deep depths of sin, we now go into the deeper depths of God's love. This wonderful psalm shows us three life-giving, three joy-sustaining aspects of God's mercy. Three things that the psalmist says are with God. First, in verse 4, we need to see, again, God's forgiveness. We need to see his forgiveness. Uh, The author has just admitted that he has absolutely no reason to think that he could stand before God on the basis of his own life and his own performance. Now, In our very therapeutic culture today, many people think that in a situation like this, the biggest need would be for someone to forgive themselves. But that's a lie. Because I am not the ultimate judge of reality. I'm not the ultimate judge of myself even. If we're being honest, we all know that our desires and our feelings and our memories have often misled us. Who are we? to think that forgiving ourselves would get us anywhere. So the psalmist, this is amazing, the psalmist turns to the judge 
And he reminds himself that the judge is forgiving. The judge is forgiving. He says, I can't do anything. I can't fix this mess I'm in. I can't save myself from the depths. He says, but with you, there's forgiveness. There's pardon. He wipes out the debt that we've run up. He sets us back up. He runs out to us and he welcomes us back home with open arms as we return from the far-off pigsties of our self-absorption and our foolishness. The psalmist knows, with you, there's forgiveness. It's God's very heart to forgive those who admit that they are desperately bankrupt. But according to verse 4, knowing and savoring and embracing God's forgiveness should move us to fear God. With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Many people today take God's love for granted. And as they do that, they of course become very apathetic towards him. Maybe some of you this morning are apathetic toward God because you think it's his job to forgive you. Many people assume that verse 4 should read something like this. With you there is forgiveness so that I might carry on my merry way. Or with you, there is forgiveness so that I might feel really good about myself. But that's not what it says. It doesn't even say with you, there is forgiveness that you might be loved. It says with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Now, this kind of fear is not the fear of terror, the fear of running away from God because you're scared of what he's going to do to you. It's fear in the good sense, the fear of taking God seriously. The fear of treating God like he's God, respecting him, revering him, honoring him, seeking to do things his way. Not because you have to, not because you think you now have to pay off your debt to him, which you could never do and to even try would be to insult him. But you're doing all these things. You revere him and respect him and want to do things his way because you want to, because you love him. Savoring the goodness and the mercy of God should sober you. And as it sobers you, it transforms you. And it delights you. So that's God's forgiveness. God's first companion, so to speak. With you, there's forgiveness. The second one we see here is his steadfast love. You see that in verse 7. With you, there is steadfast love. It's not just that with God, he forgives us. He wipes away our debt. He takes our burdens off of our backs, although he does do those things, and that's wonderful. It's also that with God, he's for us. He's toward us. Uh, To continue with the financial imagery, it's not just that God gets you out of the red and back to zero and says, okay, now it's up to you. You better go fill up your bank account. A lot of Christians live that way. It's also, after God forgives your debt, takes you out of the red, gets you back to zero, it's also that God fills your account with the riches of his love and his goodness. The psalmist uses the name Yahweh here. Uh, When you see the word Lord in the Old Testament with little capital letters, that is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh. When you see it with little letters, you see it going back and forth a bunch in this psalm, when you see it with the little letters, L-O-R-D, little letters, 
That's the word that means boss or master. But here he uses the word Yahweh, uh, which in the Old Testament especially is God's personal name, his covenant name. It's how God has revealed himself to his people, particularly beginning with the Exodus, with Moses. It's how God's revealed himself to us as the one who binds himself to his people. It's God showing us here that he's a God of commitment, a God of promise, a God of relationship. The classic formulation of this all through the Bible is this little sentence, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's very similar to the kind of relationship that a man and a woman enter into with marriage. Promises and commitments to mutually belong to each other, to mutually love one another no matter what happens, for better and for worse. This is what the Bible means when it talks about Yahweh as a God who abounds in steadfast love. It's this wonderful Hebrew word, hesed. Sometimes we translate it as loving kindness. With the Lord there is hesed. It means with the Lord there is loving, patient, steadfast commitment to keep his promises to his people. No matter how badly they fail or how little they deserve it. It's really good news that God is very different than the modern American with our fear of commitment, our hesitation to settle down. It's good news that God is not like the stereotypical millennial who's freaked out about getting a dog because they don't want to commit to anything. And then when they do, they post it on Facebook after a couple years because it was too hard to have a dog. God's not like that. God's a God of commitment. God sticks to it with his people. At one point, God says to Israel that her hesed is like a morning cloud. It's like a dew that goes away early. That's what our hesed is like. Uh, We can try really, really hard to be really committed. But we're so fickle. We're so shallow. We're so weak. We fail in all kinds of ways to keep our promises. We're quick to dwell on all the ways that other people have failed to keep their promises. We find it so natural to interpret God's and other people's actions and motivations in the worst light. But that's not how God is toward us. God's not fickle towards us. God doesn't put our actions and our attitudes and our motivations in the worst possible light that he can. God's love for us cannot and will not fail. His forgiveness extends all the way back and all the way forward. It's totally comprehensive. That brings us to this third aspect of God's mercy, the third companion that's with God. His forgiveness, his steadfast love, and now his redemption. Verses 7 and 8 say that with God, there's plentiful redemption. Now, redemption, I don't know, maybe this is intentional. There's a lot of financial imagery in this psalm. Redemption is another financial word in the Bible. It has to do with paying a price to rescue somebody out of slavery or out of captivity. Uh, It's a lot like our idea of paying a ransom to get a hostage back. The concept gets applied especially to how God redeems Israel out of Egypt. They're literally in slavery in Egypt. 
And God says, I'm going to redeem you so that you can have a new master. You're not going to serve Pharaoh anymore. You're going to serve me. But you see here that redemption is a big part of what it means for God to forgive and to love each one of his people. He redeems us plentifully. Not from some of our iniquities, but from all of our iniquities. It's a way of saying that God is not stingy, that God is not short on cash, that when he opens his wallet, there's no little cartoon mods that fly out of it. God redeems us, all of us, all the way. Our souls and our minds and our bodies and our relationships, the whole universe. God says, I'm going to redeem everything. And so now, in between Jesus' two comings, we do have this redemption in part. Best of all, we have forgiveness from God. You really can believe and enjoy and have God's forgiveness today. But when Jesus returns the second time, he's going to complete this redemption. All of your sadness, all of your aches, physically and mentally and spiritually, all of your shame, all of your many and your ongoing failures... If your hope is in God, he promises you all of it will be redeemed. All of it will be transposed. All of it will be transformed. God has paid the price to bring you out of miserable slavery to sin. And what was the price? Was the price of God redeeming you what a lot of people think it is? Was the price that he had to shrug his shoulders? Was the price that he had to kind of wink and smile? Was the price that he has to put on a red Santa hat and be cosmic Santa Claus and just be Mr. Nice Guy? No. The Bible says that the price is his own son. That's the price of redemption. The price is Jesus. The only man who's ever lived who was not stained or twisted by iniquity The only man in history who could have stood in God's courtroom and stood there confidently with nothing to be afraid of. He could have had every single thought, every single word, every single emotion and action tallied up in God's courtroom. It it would have been no big deal to him to do that. But you see, on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there dying on the cross, he's paying the price of redemption Not for his sins, for ours. Paying to and for the Father. Uh, Last week, we talked in Psalm 129 about the justice and yet the terror of God's wrath against sin. And so as Jesus is there on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is there bearing the terrible, horrible weight of God's wrath. As a substitute in my place, in your place, in the place of anybody who puts their trust in him. So how and why is God's redemption plentiful? How and why is God's redemption so comprehensive? Because Jesus, the God-man, paid it himself. Jesus sunk into the depths of our iniquity. 
And then three days later, by the power and the light of his own life, raised himself up out of it. Jesus now invites every one of us to come into the open arms of the Father who stands ready to lavish his forgiveness and his love and his redemption. Our sin is so serious and our iniquity is so deep that there's absolutely nothing we can do to deal with it on our own. We're like the kid in the well. So what do you do? Well, here's what you do. You do nothing. Not just because you can do nothing, but because you should do nothing. All you can do is accept it. All you can do is open your hands and let God fill them. All you have to do is to believe that Jesus came for God to give you all of this. This is why the psalm talks so much in this second half about waiting. Waiting for God. Waiting for His Word. Hoping in Him. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. You and I are in so deep that we cannot and should not do anything about it. So we don't do anything about it. We wait for God. We watch Him do the work. We watch Him pay the price. And then we just accept it. This is what the Bible calls faith. Faith. It is simply trusting that God really means it. God really means what He says. When He says and He shows us that He has reached down into the depths to rescue us. With Him, there's forgiveness. With Him, there's steadfast love. With Him, there's plentiful redemption. Do you believe Him? Let's pray. Father, help us to believe first that we can't do anything and second that you've done everything. There's nothing more natural for us than to think that we can dig ourselves out of the pit, that we don't need you. So forgive us for the ways that we continue to act like that. Teach us to see these wonderful companions of yours your forgiveness and your love and your redemption. And as we savor them and we embrace them, help us to fear you. Help us to live for you, to live with humility, without any self-righteousness, without any regard for ourselves. Help us to love each other and to love this, your world, as a way of responding to you and your love for us. For we ask it humbly in the name of our friend and our brother, Jesus. Amen.